You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because cannons that create themselves. I'm Victor Manibo. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 81. That's just good policy. Well, welcome back, listeners, for what I am certain is going to be another wonderful episode of World Building for Masochists, because we have an amazing guest star. Victor, please introduce yourself uh, and tell our listeners anything that they should know about you and your work. Sure. My name is Victor Manibo. I'm a Filipino science fiction and fantasy author based in New York. I am coming out with my debut science fiction novel called The Sleepless, and it comes out August 23rd from my Aeron books. Um, other than writing, though, I am also a lawyer. I work in the field of immigration, criminal law, and civil rights. Most of my clients are, you know, people who have to go up against the government, uh, people who are being deported by ICE or caught by the NYPD or are targeted by corrupt or incompetent like government agencies. So I'm really excited to talk to y'all about law and policy because it's something that really bleeds into my work as a writer so you're you're doing serious heroes work you're doing real life <laughs> heroes thank you work. i mean i work for a private firm so I, you know like there are <laughs> like bigger heroes like the nonprofit lawyers out there uh, i think are like the bigger heroes but it, it's a rewarding um field that i'm in i'm very lucky to be in it so i mean i know whenever i'm world building i i think an absurd amount about like how laws and policy will work within the world. I mean, I had I had a sequence in Way of the Shield when I was writing it that is like a sequence that's happening in the, on the parliament floor and the main the character the point of view character like has no experience with this and is just seeing it all happening and going like what is all happening. And one of my beta readers wrote back to me he's like, "Look, I work for the Texas legislature reading through minutes and even I was like, whoa, this is too wonky. <laughs> you need to get some out of it. Oh yeah. You've you've passed the event horizon of wonk at that point. <laughs> but I mean I think it's a thing where a lot of secondary world fantasy doesn't think about the way law and policy necessarily even needs to work beyond like their I mean, so many of them is like, there's the king, and the king has, like, maybe three advisors, and that's the whole function in government for an entire nation, and and, <laughs> and how anything gets done is, is a mystery, but right. well, I, I think it's far more interesting to have complex systems and, and make that uh, come about. But if we, one of the big things is that there is a big difference between law and policy, so... You being far more expert than either Cass nor I <laughs> probably could explain those differences a little bit better. Well, I mean, going back to what you were saying about, you know, a lot of fantasy worlds having, you know, a king and advisors and they just like do whatever they want. Um, you know, that in itself is some sort of policy, right? I think when people talk about policy or even when academics talk about policy, they're talking about um what they're trying to do in the most general sense. Um, 
and in that case, you know, a king, his policy may be that he wants to have a kingdom that is ruled by four people doing whatever they want. That's a horrible policy, but that's, you know, in the most general sense, it is a policy. The policy is just, you know, what, what values does a polity or a, a government have? And, and, you know, the law is one of the mechanisms by which um, such government can achieve those values or, or those principles or those goals. Um, aside from law, like, you know, um, how they allocate resources is, is also uh, a way to achieve certain policies. Like, you know, you think of the law as a tool, which is your stick and, and funding as your carrot, right? And they're all in, in purpose, the purposes all in the service of whatever policy that government might have. So I guess that's that's a good way of thinking about the difference between the two. They're very related, they overlap, especially depending on what kind of government you have. We say so often that like so many things come down to economics and taxes particularly. And I'm just thinking about what I know about like medieval European history and how much law existed because of the king or the princes or the oligarchs, you know, whatever form you had at the time, needing money to wage war. And they had to find a way to, like, codify their ability to get money to go wage war. So much of it comes often, like, germinates around that, I feel like. Right, absolutely. And, you know, monetary policy is enacted in law. We have, like, the budget every year. and There's always budget fights on, on every level of the government, right? Um, but I think for a lot of people also, when, when they're right about the law, what they're mostly thinking about is the what can you do and what you can't you do without really thinking, oh, you know what, like monetary policy is a, a form of law. It is codified in, into law in, in, in a lot of ways. Well, and there also used to be, too, the difference between like civil law and ecclesiastical law, which I think not everyone sort of realizes that's, you know, if we think about like, ah, king doing kingy things, that was very much part of it, is that like the civil law tended to be the king doing the kingy things. The ecclesiastical law was the church doing the churchy things. And that was what actually governed so much of behavior of like what you're allowed to do and the ways in which you're allowed to do it but it was two completely different systems that didn't actually really touch each other for hundreds and hundreds of years right and you know i this is going back to what i was saying about how for a lot of fantasy stories these things tend to overlap the laws that are made by men and the natural law meaning the the law that people believe comes from a divine being and, and they're all like, you know, kind of merge into the king or the monarch. Um, and, and for a really long time, that's how it was until we all decided, yeah, you know what, this is all bull. We're going to now we're, we're moving towards a system of government where we're separating religious law, ecclesiastical law and um, secular law. Um, or at least at least this country is trying to do that. Um, but but, you know, it, it's. It's interesting to see how that kind of um, changed throughout history. But also when you're building more and more complex systems, you can then create the systems in which those things come into conflict. Like, oh, we, you know, but this is how things are based on our ecclesiastical law. Like, yes, but we did decide that it, that was not supposed to affect the, the civil law in the slightest, but now it is. Oops. I, I think you can in do... A purely hypothetical in scenario. a purely <laughs> hypothetical scenario that has nothing to do with this, our current day and age. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, you know, there were a lot of interesting stories, like, you know, um, when you think about the Borgias and how, 
you know, uh, where, what is the source of power um, in that um, time, in that period? Um, is it, you know, kingdoms? Is it city-states? It's, is it the Catholic Church? And when you have all these institutions with different um, means of control, systems of control, systems of influence, uh, with different leaders, with different rules, and, and seeing them clash, it's just so, I mean, for me, beautiful to see because, like, there's so much conflict and drama. So what I think that gets me thinking about next is, like, how do people know what the law is or what the policies are? Like, how do the people know what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do? Is it written down? Is it common law? Does it have to get passed by a legislature? What are some of the things that we can explore when we're world building within that framework? For me, the most interesting stories about law or um, the interaction between a character and their rules of their world, the man-made or the character-made rules of their world, is when they inadvertently break a law that they didn't know about. And, you know, <laughs> in, in, in our society, um, ignorance of the law is no excuse for co compliance, right? Um, but there are uh, so many interesting story ideas where people just don't know. And even in, in this world that we live in, um, where we are all connected, where, where you know, a lot of the a big part of the population is is literate and um, engaged in, in civics and, and, and society, hopefully, one would hope. We still don't know which laws um, govern us um, aside from the basic ones, the big ones that don't kill, don't, you know, don't steal. Um, the nitty gritty is something that you have to learn on a daily basis. And when I think, when I think about what the laws are in the worlds that I create, and it's mostly um, science fictional worlds, um, they're all gonna be codified because that's where we are, and I think that's you know where the future is gonna be. It's all gonna, just gonna be codified. But when you're thinking about um, fantasy worlds, it might not be codified. It might be passed down by oral tradition, um, and which is how you know tribal laws were for for a really really long time, right? And no matter whether laws are codified or not, I guess what I'm trying to say is there will always be people who will not know. Even the most educated people will have gaps in their knowledge because their main concern is their daily life. How am I moving through the world and am I coming across any um, barriers that will subject me to punishment? If And if I don't, if this is not relevant to my daily life, then I'm not thinking about it until something unique and unusual happens where they're thrust in a situation that that they're they're crossing a line that they didn't know i mean i think that brings up some of the big like choices you can make at the beginning phase of your world building is how codified is the law going to be and who has the right to codify it in the first place and then how is that codification enforced once once it exists right yeah, you broke a law. <laughs> Says who? Exactly. <laughs> Prove it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it, it, it's so interesting because a lot of the questions about codification of law is also flows into the enforcement of, of the law, which is really where uh, individuals, characters, come up against the, the government, the apparatus of law enforcement, cops, for example. If you have cops in your um, fantasy or science fictional world, um, it's all about implementation and, and who knows what the law is. And even like, you know, even in our own personal experience, we can tell that sometimes even law enforcers don't know what the law is. 
or pretend ignorance of what the law is to to whatever ends, uh, you know, to a personal or institutional end, right? The codification element is really important, especially because it affects the implementation of it and the enforcement and 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 the punishment and how people get punished and who gets punished. And that can be different based on sort of the size of the society you're building, too. Larger societies, I think, often have a larger apparatus of law and enforcement, whereas a smaller society, you may use the the force of the community itself, you know, not a specified regiment of enforcers, but the public opinion, the the shame or the ability of your neighbors to just get sticks and beat you, um, exactly. you know, frankly, like I'm thinking about the the um, the Norse and the Saxon like wear guilds, like murder not as illegal as we think of it now. <laughs> you just had to pay. Like, if you killed a dude, you had to pay their family. Whatever their weregirl was worth based on their rank in society. Uh-huh. And if you didn't, then their family was allowed to come murder you right back. <laughs> like, And that was not codified. No one was enforcing that except perhaps, you know, the lord or the king at the top. But it was mostly enforced by the community itself and by the families involved. Right. And, and you know, for, for a really long time, it's not like, you know... The police or uh, policemen as an institution have have been there throughout history. Like we never really had them. Uh, it's really the community who enforces it. Um, you know, sometimes the law enforcement gets privatized through um, imposition of bounties, right? Um, and, and this is again something to think about um, when you have outsourced your law enforcement to the greater community. How good is the enforcement going to be when when your law enforcement? has uh, you know a monetary incentive to do certain things how do they enforce the law um, and I think that these are just really interesting questions to get into no matter how you want to structure it there's there's gonna be conflict like obviously like oh this cop you know has to meet a quota like he will act a certain way <laughs> yeah the the cop who is expected to make a certain number of arrests within a certain number of time is going to make different decisions than one who is not. I mean, just just because he's got to he's got to arrest somebody, so therefore he'll arrest anybody. You know, like that's one of the things I did in the Meridane books, specifically the Constabulary books, is I wanted there to be a really complicated legal and judicial system based on the idea. I I, I had this whole idea that like when the country had been reformed and thus the like new whole new sets of laws and all that were created for this new nation that they wanted to make it extremely hard to spuriously arrest someone because they had just come from a period where there had been like essentially like an inquisition and anybody was grabbed off the street and all that they're like we're not gonna let that happen anymore than like any you know lord or king can be like arrest that guy because just because i want to so they made a system that was by its nature, incredibly complex, and that erred on the side of you can't arrest somebody for for no good reason, and so that's what I built into the system for that for that very purpose. But I think that's one of the big choices you have to make: is why was the system designed the way it's designed, and what was the motivation behind creating some of those things? And how much is design versus how much is neglect? Mm. I'm thinking about you know, Victor, you said about like um, if a bounty is enforcing something is that because there's a lack of like regular control and we sort of have to rely on 
random people wandering through occasion. I'm thinking about the Star Wars universe and how much in the outer rim. <laughs> yeah. So much is on bounty like, <laughs> Right. Bounty hunters running things down. Or um, you know, like local gangs, essentially, which is also something we see in Fonda Lee's um uh Green Bone right. saga, is that the the clans are sort of there there is law. Like KCON has laws and has a law enforcement system, but they are so weak compared to the clans that the clans are the ones with the real power of enforcement. Right. They're the ones who and, impose and order, really... which is a whole yeah, different yeah. thing from the law itself, um, which is yeah. Yeah, <laughs> interesting, which is the fodder for like many Westerns, right? Also. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, the, the it seems like the government creates law, but the clans create policy. Is <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and that happens when, you know, when the government is, is weak, right? When the government, the leaders, um, you know, can't, can't implement their own policy, can't enforce their own laws. And, and, you know, this is also another interesting part of like, it's not just about what law is on the books, what's codified, but... Um, how strong are those institutions? Um, how strong is the public's belief in those institutions, right? Um, when we, not to bring this to current events again, like, oh, how, how, how do we feel about the, the people who make our laws? How do we feel about the people who interpret our laws? How do we feel about the people who enforce our laws? And, and you know, it, the answer will differ from, from um, person to person, but given those attitudes, um, those people will also have different relationships with complying or ignoring or, you know, maliciously complying, maybe, um, with certain laws. I love malicious compliance. Yeah. I'm going to write a yeah. malicious compliance book or subplot because I just love that, but I haven't found the right, like, nugget yet. But I, I love watching characters do that, right? too. Like, I love watching the characters who know the law well enough mm -hmm. that they can be like, I'm going to tie you up in red tape for so long that you... <laughs> cannot do the horrible thing you're trying to do. I'm going to just legalize these circles right around you. <laughs> it's delicious to watch that. Those are always fun bits to do. I mean, I'm also thinking about, like Cass was saying, is like when the enforcement system or the compliance system is not codified, there can also, like, it can also be a fun thing to play with of like, that it is a purely social, like almost a social contract. I'm thinking especially of like, honor codes where like if you do a certain thing it's not that like there's not actually a real punishment but like every old lady in the town is going to give you that look for the rest of your life and you have to live with that and and sometimes they that, know what you did they know what you did you know what you did and they know you know and that's why they're giving you that look and are there you know social consequences beyond just the old ladies looking at you might that affect your ability to make a marriage might it affect your ability to engage in business in a very real way even though it's not codified law it's not it's not a prescribed barrier but it nonetheless exists and, and the, another fun little thing about non-codified laws is it all becomes a matter of interpretation and it's always going to be subject to distortion um you know i'm just thinking of the old ladies that you were talking about you know they will talk, they will gossip, and it's going to be a game of telephone. And by the end of the day, you don't know what the person really did. But they they will probably <laughs> suffer some sort of consequence from whatever the final form of the distorted story is going to be. What you actually did was cook an egg in a different way than the old ladies would have cooked it. But by the end of the day, what you did was slaughter an entire <laughs> hen house full of chickens with your bare hands. Like You monster, you. That kind, of, <laughs> that kind of magnification, yeah. I, I do remember, I think this is like in one of the old Star Trek novels. And in it, 
Spock had been flung back to 1857 for, like, you know, reasons. <laughs> and lost all of his memory for reasons, as the plot goes. And at one point, he's, you know, somewhere in, like, rural Oregon in this time. And this one woman needs to, like, get back to her house because she couldn't possibly stay in the house that they are all in overnight. Because she's like, then people would talk. And he's and is like storming outside. And he's like, is talk more dreaded than pneumonia? And <laughs> could be more deadly. Valid question. It could be more deadly than pneumonia. It could, but it could indeed be more deadly. It could last longer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean, it is sort of fascinating the way that sort of social enforcement of laws that aren't written down one way or another is can be far more powerful than the actual written down laws. And when you think about it, a lot of the way we, we, we conduct our lives is is not because something is illegal or forbidden by law, but because of social codes. Like the way I act when I enter a subway car, where I sit, where I put my hand, where I put my bags, there's there's a code um, for, for, you know, the place where I live and, and you know, um, the circumstances that I'm in. And none of that is written down anywhere. But I know that if I do a certain thing, I will get glared at if I, you know, manspread, for example, like, or if I, you know, don't take my backpack off um, in a crowded train car, I will be glared at. And that's a lot of, of how we move through the world is enforced by unwritten, non-codified social laws, which is also just as interesting as, you know, the, the, the legal, codified, formal systems of law that we have. Or if you, if you sit down and make an old lady stand, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. Forget about it. I, I will. Yeah, I will hear from the old lady and everybody else in the train car probably. Yeah. And it can be fun to think about too when you're if you're building a world, especially perhaps sort of a a world that you want to be more rigid. You want it to have really rigid rules. Like, could you imagine building a system where all of those unwritten social codes are? written where it suddenly becomes like based on who you are this is your seat on the subway and you have to move if this other thing happens and it actually is like codified and enforced maybe by you know if we think about like a hyper surveillance state where they're they're watching you all the time and like someone comes over the speaker and it's like you in the third seat you have to move down because you're wearing tan shoes today like <laughs> i think you can think about ways to build that out in a way that could become really interesting as as an example of like what happens when these social rules really become rigid and fixed and have enforcement behind them a different kind of enforcement behind and, them. and you know for some people that they might welcome that they might welcome clear rules that are written down somewhere that are enforceable not just against themselves but against other people because you know i mean this is one of the benefits of of codification of laws like we can't just quibble on like well you know you, did, did you do x or y you know the, the the terms are clear at least you know to the extent that our lawmakers can make them clear some people might welcome that and some people might be like no this is like you know to i don't know to micromanage this is like telling me exactly where i should you know place my hands when i'm sitting in a train car this is nuts this is uh, overreach um so, so it, there's an interesting dynamic there as to the benefits and, and, and like, you know, the downsides of having everything written down and to what level of detail. The difference between boarding a regular flight and boarding a Southwest flight. Boarding a regular flight, your seat is codified and you have to go mm. there. But Southwest, it's chaos, but there's still rules. Like, there's still <laughs> things you're supposed to do. I, I think, 
I think and then, we should codify rules when when boarding planes. Honestly, but, but that's a personal. Oh thing. my gosh! Um, you know your mileage may vary, but <laughs> no, I'm with you. I I I have I have such little tolerance for bad travelers and people who just like enter an airport and forget how to human. It's like, come on, come <laughs> right. on, come on. This this is we can yeah. do this. Come on, we're all miserable through. here. Like, please. <laughs> but yeah, like I mean, things like putting your seat back on an airplane. Some people might really like that codified. Mm-hmm. Don't be a jerk. Or it's my seat. I'll do what I want. Like some people might really like a clear delineation one way because or the they other. can point to something, right? Because some some people, yeah. you know, they might want to enforce a social norm or a social rule, but um, they 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 can't because they're afraid. Because maybe something about their personality or um, you know the the other person they're interacting with like is preventing them from like saying something. Maybe they're fearful um, for for their safety, right? So like pointing to a rule might be easier for them and might be welcome for for them. Um, but again, that, that can vary depending on the situation. And then of course, I mean, there is the recurring catchphrase of there's no rule that says I can't. And how often do then, (laughs) because of that, it's like, and everyone's like, oh, but we have an asshole here who has decided to be, to be the lawful evil person who, who's just like, I am following the letter of, of the rules here. I work with children and their ability to find loopholes <laughs> in rules for games is oh my goodness. Yeah. And no. like by I've, the end of the week, Capture the Flag has 800 more <laughs> rules than it had at the beginning of the week because y'all thought of things that would never have occurred to me. But no, yeah. you, you, can't, you really can't do that. That's not fair. It's out of the box thinking. You got to encourage that, though. <laughs> It's true, up it, until the point where where there's tears and bloodshed, and it's like, okay, now we need to re- rein that back in, just a just a little, just a little. But it's true if you if you've ever administered a game with eight year olds, you know why legal codes are so complicated <laughs> because because it is a thing of like, oh well, you didn't say I couldn't do this, so therefore I have done this, and therefore I win. And you're like, uh, now we need a new rule. And yeah, by the end of the day, you have. 800 rules and sub rules and that's what a lot of society and those people then grow up and become and become senators right <laughs> i was gonna say i feel like now we we need a parliament of eight-year-olds to like look over everything and, and poke holes in it but that brings us to a good 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 sort of segue into another way of thinking is like how do our social codes become laws how does that transition happen who gets to make those choices and, you know, to go all schoolhouse rock, uh, how, how do bills become laws? How do proposals and, and vague policies become laws in, in different kinds of worlds? Well, for, uh, you know, for a lot of people, like, the, the, the word law can mean a lot of things, right? It, it, it can overlap with ethics. It can overlap with religion or morality. And, and, and that's really a big source of what the law is. It's about... The sense of morality and ethics, um, and and sometimes to some extent the religion of, of a people, for better or worse, right? So in in terms of sources of law, that that's it. There's there's overlap. It you know morale. What's moral isn't going to be legal and vice versa. What's ethical isn't always legal and vice versa. But there's always a substantial overlap. Um, and, and you know, in an ideal society, you would like to think that our lawmakers are considering all these aspects. Um, in, in, in drafting their laws so that they reflect the values of a community. Um, but they usually don't, um, because um, at least in certain worlds, or at least in um, certain societies, um, there is a disconnect between um, the lawmakers uh, and the people who 
enact, execute, enforce the law and the people who are governed. Um, so I think a, a rich area of, of thinking about the law in, in fantasy worlds and science fictional worlds is the difference between the governed and the governing bodies and how law is, can be a system of perpetuating power, consolidating and maintaining power. Wherever the source of the law is, there's always gonna be a question of like, well, okay, if this is the moral of this society, why, why, why? Who says so? And then, and then why do you people, why do you, this, this body of, of men, why do you get to say that that is how we implement or achieve that moral value. So just a, a jumping off point on this really heavy topic. No, it's so good, though. And it's so true, because it it overlaps with so many of the things we talk about on this podcast all the time, which is like the systems of power, um, power dynamics between characters, between factions, between different segments of society. And what does give someone the, the, the right, whether moral, ethical, legal, whatever, to impose their will on somebody else? Um, whether they just think it's because it's for their own good, whether it because it's for the common good, the common peace, you know, things like that. From, from where does that power derive? And from a character point of view, I always think it's interesting because it's like, what kinds of characters believe they have that right, like intrinsically in some way? What makes them think that? What creates the kind of person who wants to do that? Because it's not always, it's not always a bad thing. You know, it's, it's some, some laws keep peace. Some laws protect your rights and some laws are designed to take them away and to curtail them and so it's, it's just not it's not it's not a, a simple issue always some characters who who want to impose these kinds of things it may be coming from a really good place but does it always lead to really good outcomes not always as our world perpetually shows us <laughs> but it, it does bring up that whoever is making the laws and people who are trying to make laws that are counter to each other each they still all believe that they're the heroes of their own story here and that they're, I mean, I, I would think very few people are making laws that they think I'm doing the wrong thing and this is great <laughs> or, or something like that. Now, they may think like I'm doing the thing that's great for me. that's going to line my pockets very, very nicely. And so it's good for me. But I mean, they usually still think they're doing something intrinsically correct. You would think. Maybe not. But you would hope so. <laughs> I mean, the power of powerful people to justify things is boundless. There is that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, look, everything in this country works better when I'm happy. So therefore, my happiness is the most important thing for the law to protect. <laughs> and, and, you know, like when you think about um, in fantasy worlds, like the, the rules of, you know, succession, um, is really all about consolidating power. And then that's like a law, right? That's a rule that is meant to consolidate and maintain power. And that, that, that has translated to, in our society now, our rules on inheritance, right? That's still a thing. Um, that's still a thing that we do, that we, we make sure that our lineage gets the wealth that we own or the parents own, right? Um, do the people who um, enact our inheritance laws or who, who amend them, do they think that they're just doing it for themselves? Probably not. They probably think, okay, it benefits me, but also this is how things are supposed to go. Families should be able to take care of their future generations. Um, so 
I think one of the interesting portrayal interesting portrayals of of the way law works in in fiction are always ones that show that there aren't just like good laws or bad laws. Um, there are laws that are that uh, will benefit some people and will harm some people, but as they're written, they're not necessarily like, oh, it's easy to spot. This is evil, and this should be repealed. I, I think you know there there are easy like laws to spot like that, and and for me, they're not very compelling. I'm like, uh, yeah, obviously, like this is horrible. Obviously, these people should rise up in arms and like you know do something about it. Yes, but the law means that they don't get any arms and only only the king's soldiers get to get to are allowed legally to carry arms so therefore therefore you automatically create a system where it's where it is harder for something people for to rise up, which i think is exactly. for an uprising which i think is another interesting thing is like if the system is flawed or bad what are the elements of the system that prevent it from breaking down and and in say a more totalitarian system it's it is you know baked into the concept of we're doing everything we can to prevent a rebellion because we know we deserve one <laughs> i mean to go back to star wars that was always the excuse the empire used and and that's true in in all the you know the books the extended universe media when you see imperial characters justifying themselves it is usually not yes we're super evil for evil reasons because evil means you get to wear sexier outfits although that would also be frankly valid but the evil always get the better outfits there there is that you always get the better outfits when you're evil. Yeah, yeah. but the excuses they give are always that we are bringing order to the galaxy we are we are bringing security we are bringing peace and it's it's like okay yes but you're also going the the um the the, the method described by um tacitus you know the, the desolate we made a desolation and called it a peace like it's like mm, you, you maybe technically yes you made it peaceful but that's because you murdered most of the people there so and then there was no often, more fighting so therefore yeah but like the best the best imperial characters the ones that are interesting to read about even if you completely disagree with them are the ones like and, and I'm, I'm gonna go go um deep on my dorkery here like like ray sloan um, who is an Imperial Admiral in Chuck Wendig's series, that, like, she she believes she is doing the galaxy a favor. She believes she is sacrificing herself for the galaxy's good, and she does not understand why all these rebels keep messing it up for her <laughs> and everybody else. And that's interesting. It's like, I completely disagree with her, but it makes a compelling character. I was going to say, you completely disagree with her because you've already been taught by the narrative to disagree with her. And, like, it'd be interesting if somebody took the exact same sort of, you know, setting, but made your main POV be the Empire, and how how easy it would be to, to make that then seem to be that you've just got these dissidents who are, who are, who are murdering people and causing trouble. Claudia Gray's Lost Stars plays with that in a really interesting way, because the... the 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 two two um, protagonist figures grow up on an imperial controlled planet where they believe it is a good thing like they are raised from childhood they think it's all good and then they kind of go divergent ways as they grow up and it's it's such a good way of showing the the two viewpoints on that of following the law versus i have to break these laws because they are doing more harm than they are good 
there was a somewhat obscure show called uh, Continuum in which it starts in the future and a police officer and eight terrorists are all thrown back in time at in the very first episode. And you can, I'm pretty sure it's all on Netflix and it's definitely worth checking out. But the over the course of the, of the run of the show, you start to realize that the police officers to realize of like, wait, I came from a fascist totalitarian regime. Maybe I'm the bad guy here. <laughs> and, and it does it does play with that point of view over the course of over the course of the series. So it's worth checking I, out. Yeah, I love those stories where, you know, the lawmen the rigid lawmen realize the injustice of the system that they're perpetuating. Like I mean, Inspector Javert from Lemis is like an indelible character for for the exact for that exact reason, right? Like the law was his life, and then when it comes up against like you know, being a good human being, he he can't he can't compute, he can't process, and he you know does the the ultimate like you know I can't do this, I am breaking down goodbye, you know. I did the right thing, but not the legal thing. Help, help! Yes. Does not compute. Yeah. Does not compute. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, blue screen of deaths out. But of course, it takes him 20 years to get there or something like that, too, which is also just fascinating. Like, how how readily can your characters, whichever, you know, side of any of this they fall on, how readily can they reevaluate their worldview? Are they intractable or are they open to change? In the same way that, like, you know, when we think about laws, like, how can they, how do we change them? Or how do they change in the course of a story, right? And, and you know... Not to bring this back to a place of lame is, but you know, revolutions <laughs> are a good way to change the law. It doesn't just change the system of government; it changes the leaders. It changes, hopefully, it changes the body of law. But sometimes, for some people, like you know, I'm Filipino, so um, we do revolutions a lot. Um, but uh, we, we sometimes change the leaders. Sometimes we change the forms of government, but we don't really change the laws too much because they're too hard, or or because maybe we we think. That the laws, the laws were good. It was the people that were bad. But no, sometimes the laws were also bad because the people who made them were bad. Um, I think um, a lot of um, people tend to think of leaders as as more um, easily replaceable, and you know structures as probably um, more easily changeable. Like you know, make a new government agency or make a new you know branch of government. But but laws are like, oh, this is it. Um, we're not gonna we're not gonna mess with this because this is the law. I mean, look at what's going on with our constitution, right? Um, so for me, when you start to think about laws and policies in, in stories, it's always good to think about how revolutions can change law, how a change in leadership can change law, and sometimes even like emergencies. Like, you know, if, a, if an asteroid hits, um, you know, the West Coast, like, that's going to change the law somehow. It's going to change the structure of the entire yeah, federal government. You brought up laws of succession earlier, and it, it struck me how I mean, we always talk about you know choice versus presumption on this show. How that tends to be one of those things that is the most like presumed and unexamined in a lot of a lot of fantasy and sci-fi. That just the idea of who gets to who gets to inherit, who gets to succeed, is is often a thing that we don't even like think about challenging as a concept a lot of the times and and i think that i think that's really interesting that we could we could probably stand 
to do something more interesting with that. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's always been a good source of conflict, right? Like, you know, um, anytime there's an inheritance battle, I'm like, oh my God, this is delicious. I want to know how it's going to play out. But, you know, you, you can also peel it back a little bit and think, okay, well, why are we using this, this law as a trope? Because it, you know, it, it is a trope now. And, and, and what does it mean? What does it imply? In, and what does it say about this world where um, succession is decided by bloodline? It's sort of your options are sort of like sort of direct inheritance, whether it's, you know, like male preference primogeniture or not, um, but through the bloodline. Or you can have an election. Or what else? Like, what are our other options? Um, there, there's always the, the very popular in some dynasties where rulers, you know, it's really important to them to have a lot of kids. And I'm thinking like ancient Egypt, things like that, really early Egypt. Um, but then once the pharaoh dies, it's like, oh, well, guess I better murder all my brothers and sisters if I want to be the last one standing. <laughs> like, that's, that's inheritance, but not as direct as, as we often think of. But I'm also thinking, like, wouldn't it be hilarious to have a system and it would be chaos? Like, I'm not purporting this as I'm not proposing this as an actual system of government, but like in a story where the succession was entirely random. Yeah, I love that. Well, like when when the ruler dies, we freaking pick a name out of a hat and see how well they do. I mean, that's in some ways that's the fairest possible system. <laughs> like I said, I don't think it would be a good idea. But it'd be interesting to see a society try it. And, you know, like, maybe the worst possible person is the one who gets picked. Let's see how that plays out. And how long they make it. <laughs> it, it certainly would be fascinating to see, say, like, Parliament by lottery or something. <laughs> or something like that. I, 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 would like to, I would like to see something more like that. I do think there have been societies where, like, not the leader leader, but, like, parliaments, like, councils, where it did sort of go, like, by rotation, by by lottery, by everyone serves, you know, one year of their lives determined in some fashion. It tends to be, I think, smaller. Like, I feel like even, like, some of the, like, early, like, Puritans may have done things like that, like, early America, when they were still their own little enclaves. Um, like, like, the same concept as jury duty. Where it's like, you know, yeah, kind of, yeah. It's like, oh damn, I got a letter. I gotta, I gotta go be. I gotta go to the House of Representatives now. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go be a congressman. <sighs> and you make up some, make up some elaborate lie so you can get out of Congress duty. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, my my horse died. I can't yeah. get there. I broke both my legs in a skiing accident or something. I'm 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 not a lawyer myself, but I'm the daughter of two of them. Oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. We're, we're <laughs> Man, I get away with nothing no, no, ever in my not. entire life. Oh, God, I feel. Did, for did you. you have to be like, like if it pleased the court, I might present my case on why I deserve ice cream tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, there there's a famous story in our household of when I lost my glasses when I was five, and my father who was a prosecutor at the time i mean absolutely just he could have had me confessing to the kennedy assassination <laughs> i was just like anything anything to make this stop anything where were you that day cass where were you <laughs> I, don't know. I, was, I was i was on the bus i guess I, I was just i was about to and my mother's just standing in the corner like why are you interrogating our child <laughs> she doesn't remember that's the end of the story she doesn't know where she put them that's why they're lost <laughs> 
That's why they're <laughs> exactly. I, I do think so. Like I think sort of circle back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago about changing the law or changing policy or changing leaders. And what are the mechanisms for for any of those things? You know, beyond just succession, are there mechanisms for changing the law? Is it a general petition? Right. Is it everybody shows up angry in the town square and the leader goes, hmm, <laughs> I guess I better change a thing? Or is it a complex process as it as it is in our current system um, that has to go through so many checks and balances? And and are there are there different choices we could make in our fantasy and sci-fi? Right. I mean, systems. You know, are there elections? Is always like a good thing to ask about any like system of government or like any any body really that has leaders, right? Um, how do we replace them? Because replacing the leaders um, will replace policy and and could replace law. Um, are there term limits? For example, for for leaders, um, you know, can they keep running forever and ever? Um, and this is this is how you know um, you know monastic uh, monarchic dynasties have been replaced by political dynasties, right? In in more like you know um, current events, like is there gerrymandering? Is there a way by which people can game the system so that they can tilt elections to their favor? And when we think about forms of government, uh, um, sometimes you have to think about how that government changes. It's not really necessarily about the law because it's like, it's on a macro level, right? Um, but it's always um, interesting to think about that. Conflict might not come from that, from your, in a certain story, the way that, you know, uh, the law of succession might 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 be the central conflict in, in a fantasy story. Um, but it's still like something that really, fleshes out a world and tells you what um, this country, what this empire values. Well, and those can be moments of such potent change, potent peril as well. Um, a succession, and if there's a break in succession or a question over succession, then, I mean, once again, as we sort of see, <laughs> oh, if there's a dispute <laughs> over succession <laughs> or or a dispute like back in 2000 with yeah. with... The, the, the damn hanging chads and all that like those are juicy story moments for for one reason or another um and so they're good places to, to hang your plot hooks who gets to arbitrate that that dis right. that dispute yeah exactly Nine people who, who all went to the same two <laughs> law schools get to decide that. yeah and who don't have term limits and maybe they should <laughs> like that gets back to where we like, came up with that rule when everyone thing. died at 57 jesus seriously yeah. exactly oh wow uh, we keep going back to those people it's the soup we live in but that is also an element certainly of like when were the laws made and how do they apply now is, yeah. is a huge is a huge thing like do you know were things that seemed like really good ideas or were major concerns i mean a lot of people were very very concerned in 1794 about having to keep soldiers in your own house and nobody really cares about that right now it's not an issue <laughs> but it was very very important that i figured the third amendment's a good safe one that nobody has like that's usually yeah probably not too many strong feelings but you can also think about it, like i always love i love reading about weird laws um you know just archaic things that somehow got on the books and and are technically still there um i think it's true actually this one might have been repealed fairly recently but for a, a while in richmond virginia where i'm from 
it was illegal to flip a coin in any eating establishment <laughs> to determine who pays for a drink. And I'm like, under Why? what circumstances <laughs> did you need to codify that? Like, and then... I want to talk to the, there, lawman, there is, the lawmaker who wrote this. Like, what happened? Right? What kind of bar tab did you have to pay? Like, what? Yeah. Exactly. I want to hear like, that story. I, I, mean, I, I hate this rule. There is a like, story. I want to hear the story. Yes, absolutely. But just like the... the, the the things that are smaller scale and that to sort of loop back to something we said towards the beginning that might affect your character in a different way than than the big issue of like the succession. I like those little laws. I like the little things that that we do interact with all the time, whether we really even consciously think about it or not. Things like I mean, traffic yeah. laws. Do we consciously process them as traffic laws every time we drive? Maybe not. But when Waze tells me that there's you know a little little blue hat up ahead of me, you better believe that I think about how much my last speeding ticket cost me and I'm like oh I don't want to do that again or um you know Romana's not here I think her book Torn opens fantastically because it opens with a matter of law it opens with her character needing to license her business which is so mundane it's so it's so normal but it tells us immediately so much about who this character is what she cares about what the pressures in her life are and where they intersect intersect with her her laws right. and her government, and it's it immediately conveys so much like information. What the bureaucracy is probably in that world, mm-hmm. which she's she's waiting outside a door. It's like this place is only open like every third day, and it's it's yeah, all those little things that can really just get into your characters' lives and bug them, and 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 be the thing that they might feel prevents them from succeeding, even if it's not really the reason. Yeah. Like there's just so many things to play with there, and very relatable too. You also made me think about, like, which laws are, like, the laws you really have to pay attention to and who really has to pay attention to them. Like, like, like you said, traffic laws or jaywalking laws, like something like that. Like most of those, like, if nobody really thinks too much about breaking them. And if you did break them, probably nothing's going to happen. But like, what are what are the lines between those, you know, which which laws are the really serious ones, which ones are not? Which then makes me think of that really really terrible next generation episode where wesley falls in the flowers and is sentenced to death <laughs> yeah that's a weird one on the planet of the jogging people on the planet of the uh, jogging naked people <laughs> yeah yeah where it's just like oh yeah it's everything's cool everything's really laid back on this planet except oh you landed in the flowers oh sorry you have to die <laughs> sorry death it's like that, but that's another aspect of law, right? Yeah. Is is the proportional response? Exactly. Does the punishment fit the crime? <laughs> and in the same way that, like a lot of people these days, make the claim, I think rightfully, that if the punishment is a fine, then is it really a law, or is it only a law for for poor people? Then that's just the price right. to do that. Yeah, is that yeah. The, is the price for for breaking the law? Yeah. In in one of my other societies in the Marinane world, I that is how the law works. There, it is just like. It's all fines because they're like, hey, you know, if you've got enough money, you can you can get away with whatever you want because you just have to pay the fine. And, and they don't deceive themselves that the system is anything but that. And in a lot of um, states around the country, cash bail is being abolished. And like, that's a good thing, right? Because um, in relation to fines, for example, like only if, if we have cash bail, then only poor people end up in jail. Because um, the rich people can always, or the people with means can always, like, pay their way out of, of trouble. So that, again, reflects, okay, who are the important people in this society? Who are privileged, like, 
in, in the classical use of that word and who are um, not privileged. Um, and <laughs> it's just like really interesting to think about that in, in like how the money aspect of, of the law um, is, is such a big thing. Uh, and in our daily lives, a lot of the law is enforced through money. Um, and it can be, too, in our, you know, fantasy or science fiction world. And I think you could also build in uh, other other means that don't have to be just money. They might somehow be related to money. What you just said reminded me of one of my favorite stories about Ben Johnson, who was one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, who at one point when he got arrested, and I think he might have been like, it might have been a crime that he could have been killed for. But he pled the benefit of clergy. Because there was a law in the books that you couldn't, you know, execute clergy for this particular crime. And the way that you proved you were clergy was if you could read Latin. Oh, that's brilliant. Because the law law dated from a time that assumed anyone who could read Latin was clergy. And of course, that wasn't true anymore by the time Ben Johnson was getting in trouble. Like, he learned it at university, but he he found that loophole. He he found that that thing in the law. It was like, I plead benefit of clergy and I'm free now. Bye. (laughs) But like, can you put other weird other weird trapdoors like that into your laws um, that let your characters get into or out of sticky situations? I mean, like you were saying earlier, there are laws on the books that are so outdated now and so ridiculous. I mean, that's a that's a great way of using an old law, right? Like to get out of trouble. That That's brilliant. Ben Johnson's life was just a constant, just <laughs> how no one's made a movie about it. I don't understand. Um, before we wrap up, I would love to hear Victor from you um, as, as a, a, an expert on such things. Um, are there any like glaring or frequent missteps that you tend to see in, in world building about the law that just that just bug you, that just jar you out of the story, the way that like Rowan and I get upset about clothing errors. Right. Um, <laughs> just in general, like, you know, we see a lot of like law enforcement shows and lawyer shows or, or movies or books, and the speed by which things happen is not realistic. But that doesn't matter too much if you're in a fantasy or science fictional world. What really bugs me when there is a question of law or a question of the fairness or justness of a law is when, as I was alluding to earlier, when, when it is presented very flatly where, where it's like, this is obviously a good law or this is obviously a bad law. Um, you know, there are ways for a writer, a narrator, a point of view character to, to impart what they believe um, this law to be and to also show another facet of society that do, in good faith, like the law, benefit from the law. Not to, you know, it runs the risk of like, you know, both sidesing um, certain issues, which you might not want to do. But like I was saying, there's always a way to present um, anything, any issue, any topic where your point of view comes across, but still presenting the other side. And, and I think um, the more writers do that, the more, the richer, the not just the law, not just the interaction of the law with the characters, but the world itself that created this law is going to come across. Excellent. So as we're coming up at the end of our hour, we, whenever we have a guest, we like to invite them to add a little bit of world building trivia to the world that we've been building over the past three years on the on this podcast. And and so we, here we, we invite you to, to add your little thing to, to this world. Okay, this is going to be interesting. At least to me, it was interesting. <laughs> um, so, um, 
real-life law in New York State for like two centuries, it was illegal for people who were wearing masks or disguises to congregate with other people also wearing masks and disguises. And if you were congregating in a public place and there were like, you know, more than two of you, you could be subject to imprisonment for 15 days. This was on the books for two centuries. It's only repealed in 2020 because we all know what happened in 2020. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's a bit of um, world building trivia that um, I, I am happy to share because it just shows you how, you know, almost unchangeable some laws are, how some laws just get, you know, old and dusty and, and nobody pays attention to them until a huge emergency happens. And now we got to pay attention to this because like, hey, Technically, all of us masking up for a pandemic is illegal. So what are we going to do about this? That is fantastic. I, I actually looked it up in the Virginia Code when it became relevant. And in the Virginia Code, it specifies that the, the wearing of the mask is prohibited if its intention is to disguise your identity. If your intention is something different, <laughs> then it's not illegal. But I feel like that could cause a lot of interpretive <laughs> that, problems. That, that feels like a real, you know, a good loophole for an eight-year-old yeah. to, to walk yeah. through an invitation for smart alex to just argue <laughs> their way that was not my oh, intention funny. nobody would believe that i'm really spider-man wearing this mask <laughs> <laughs> therefore i did not have any intention to deceive my identity but if you mistook me for spider-man then that's on you not on me and we're all good <laughs> and new york had halloween for like you know halloween parades yeah for, yeah Technically, everybody could have been arrested at the Halloween parade, but... I feel like that's one of those things where, like, some overzealous police officer who just, again, either had to make quota or just wanted to be difficult was like, I'm, taking, I'm taking you in for mask code. <laughs> and the thing is, they would be allowed to do that. And, you know, what, what's the stopgap? You, you want to yeah. hope that a judge says, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. I'm dismissing this case. But then, like, what if that, that part of the system also fails? That person who's celebrating Halloween is in jail for 15 days. That's nuts to me. That would be that would be wild. That would be. I'm just picturing all these people in costume in in jail, just like it would be a party. <laughs> the way that the way they used to do like the prohibition roll ups, where it's just like we could put all these drunk people in in one cell and they're just all hanging out in their flapper <laughs> gowns. It's like except it's except it's Batman and a dinosaur and <laughs> exactly exactly the wild. Well, Victor, thank you so, so much for joining us. This has been so much fun and so much good food for thought. Uh, it has been delightful to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. I would love to come back and hang out with y'all. Excellent. We would love that too. And people should pick up The Sleepless as soon as it Yes, comes they out. should. They should. Yes. It's thank very you. good. August 23rd from Erewhon Books. Excellent. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on August 3rd, where we'll be joined by Valerie Valdez to talk about space opera settings and making one-trick planets into vibrant settings. And speaking of August, all three of your hosts will be appearing at ArmadilloCon in Austin from August 5th to 7th. 
This SFF Literary Convention will have some great special guests, including Darcy Little Badger, Fonda Lee, Ellen Clages, Lauren Ray Snow, and as Toastmaster, our own Cass Morris, as well as dozens of other great SFF writers and artists. If you can come, please come say hello to any of us. We'd be thrilled to meet you. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. Yeah.